Creating content is the bedrock of a profitable, growing, scalable, and sustainable online business. You know it, I know it, I preach it to you all the time. And so today I wanna help you out by bringing on an expert content creator on the show, someone who is running one of the biggest content machines on the internet right now to help you crush it with your content no matter where you at in whatever stage you are in your online business journey. My guest today is Jordan Calhoun, who is the editor-in-chief at Lifehacker, and hopefully you're taking advantage of all the juicy content Lifehacker has to offer. They're an amazing resource. He is editor-in-chief at Lifehacker. He's also the host of the award-winning podcast, The Upgrade. He's a renaissance man. Here we go. Return Peace Corps volunteer. He holds a BA in sociology and criminal justice, a BS in psychology, and an MPA in public policy. He's also a pop culture connoisseur. He and I both grew up in the 80s and 90s, and so we have a shared love of movies, video games, TV, books, comic books, all of the above. Also, he has a brand new book, Piccolo is Black, that just dropped in stores today, available everywhere. And in this conversation, Jordan and I sat down, we talk about how to become a prolific content creator, even when you run out of ideas, where the line is between creating content for clicks or for yourself. And then we discuss the drive to want to be someone that matters in the world and not be a minor character. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Jordan, and I know you will too. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Jordan Calhoun. Jordan, it's an honor to speak with you. I'm grateful that you you were flexible with me today. I had to <laughs> shoot this from home, as I was telling you. So uh, I had to get the kids, and now I'm, I'm now I'm in the back room saying, everyone be quiet, because I got a cool interview with Jordan Calhoun. But it's an honor to speak to you, and I'm just excited to dive into a conversation with you about your book, about what you're doing at Lifehacker, and all that you're excited about. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. I don't have kids to worry about. I just have a dog. So if anyone hears any grinding in the background, it's my dog chewing on a bone and me trying to take it away from her. Yeah, I, I don't have dogs. I grew up with cats, so I get shunned by a lot of people that don't think cats are real animals. But uh, I don't have any pets other than a bunny right now. But I do know that a dog, from what I can tell, is a lot like a kid, but they don't talk back to you. They don't, yeah. And they don't ask for a phone. Yeah, yeah. My dog is not rebellious at all. She just wants affection and attention all the time. So at some point, she's going to like rest her head on my lap and just wonder why I'm talking to a laptop this entire time. But she'll get over it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, dude, I'm excited. I want to talk about a few things. Um, I want to get into your book. Um, this is for me, like a sort of a personal thing that I'm, I'm very interested in. So I'm going to be a little selfish in that in the interview. But tell me more about Lifehacker in terms of how you arrived there as editor in chief. And then what does your role look like day to day? I mean, how much of it is writing versus managing versus casting vision? What, like, what does that look like? And how do you feel like your skill sets really are a good fit for your role there at Lifehacker? Oh man, a lot of big questions there. So I'll start by saying my road to Lifehacker was pretty atypical for a journalist and for a writer. My background, my undergrad degree is in I mean, a bunch of random things. And when I got my master's degree, it was in public policy and nonprofit management. Like my career was on a trajectory toward the foreign service. I served in the Peace Corps for a few years. I took the Foreign Service exam. I surprisingly passed the Foreign Service exam, and that was where my life was headed for a good chunk of time until I decided that I wanted to write. And when I decided I wanted to write, I mean, this was, I mean, I was probably close to 30 at that point and had started figuring it out, like figuring out the landscape of journalism, figuring out how to pitch editors, figuring out how to find places to pitch and how to craft a story and how to get published. And long, long story short, uh, you know, ended up with one byline at a small place and I ended up with a slightly bigger byline subsequently. And then ended up with a slightly bigger byline until you end up with a portfolio and a little bit of credibility. And I found my way to Lifehacker sort of as a dream publication for someone like me who has a lot of niche interests and a lot of varying experiences that sort of lend itself well to just, um, you know, <laughs> caring about the breadth of the human experience and professional experience. And Lifehacker is great for that because it gives me the flexibility to talk about, you know, uh, how I feel about ethics one day and how I feel about, you know, productivity and, uh, you know, gardening the next day. It could be basically anything as long as it's about how to do something 
smarter or more efficiently or in a better way or in a healthier way. I think a lot of productivity mm-hmm. culture is sort of toxic in a way where it tries to get us to always be chasing something to the point of burnout. Mm-hmm. So I get to talk about that. And it's been uh, it's been an adventure, Graham. It's been it's been a fun adventure. To answer your question about my role at Lifehacker, a lot of it is shaping the vision for the site and what that looks like on a practical sense is deciding what stories we run, like deciding yeah. what ideas we want to go with and what ideas fit the, the, the spirit of the site and what things are outside of the spirit of the site. So for an example, something inside the spirit of the site would be what I just described, like something that is in favor of productivity and in favor of self-improvement, but within the confines of doing it in a way that I would consider um, healthy and uh, long-term, not in a way that you're burning yourself out, right? And something outside of the scope of our site would be something that is, you know, uh, not based in science or not based in a very practical mindset. I think there are, you know, there's a million self-help books that have a million solutions to problems. And 99% of those solutions, in my opinion, would be BS because they're they're trying to sell you an, an idea of something that really isn't sustainable. And I always want to and try to be practical in that a lot of the things that all of us are challenged with every day in our lives and our careers don't have easy solutions to those problems. Like I'm never going to want our writers or never want myself to write something with the idea that like, this is the solution to your problem. This is how you do, this is how you, you know, become a productive human. This is how you, you know, lose weight or, you know, fall into the idea that you should be losing weight. We try to be skeptical and to question a lot of the, the, the assumptions that we have about what living a good life, air quotes, like good life means. And that's really fun for someone like me who likes to grapple with those type of questions. So that's, that's my role at Lifehacker. That's what I get to do. And I have a lot of fun doing it. That's awesome, man. I mean, I think on the one hand, first of all, I really do. I love hearing from your perspective a little more of the ethos of Lifehacker in your own words. I, I think the words that jumped out to me are sustainable, like improvement in a way that's actually sustainable. And I think that's something that's missing in a lot of conversations about self-improvement to your point. Um, self-improvement it, as an, as an end, I don't know if it, at, at what cost, you know, right. like you have to give up everything for some improvement that I don't know if that's worth it to me. So that's and very interesting. End, I would say <laughs> you're, you're not going to get to a no. point where you reach the mountaintop. You're never going to be like, you know what I am, uh, you know, I am the person who I want to be like, yes, yeah, in some degree, exactly. you want to be content and to love yourself for who you are, but you're always going to be finding new ways of doing things like that. That journey of self-improvement is the thing that I try to be uh, content with and, and enjoy. Uh, do you find it hard as, as someone who's casting a vision for creating content across a lot of areas that there is a, a theme there, but over a lot of areas, do you feel like, feel like that's really challenging to keep it all focused? Because a lot of like, a lot of my students, for example, are creating a lot of content, but it's pretty focused. Like they're a weight loss coach or they're help, helping people like I have for years, like with their music production or with their business or, so it's going to be, you know, around this core idea or niche or topic. The challenge I imagine would be that you just get so you could, like you be some crazy esoteric topic that you start to lose your audience. So is what does it dance look mm-hmm. like to keep it interesting, which you posited as a benefit, which I think is really cool. You get to talk about all these cool things, but then keep it focused for your core audience. It would be absolutely challenging if I were reliant on myself to do it because there's no way that I would be able to do it. And the way that I go about doing it, the way that I would recommend anyone in this type of situation to go about doing it is relying on people who are smarter than them in other areas. I don't need to be smart in everything. We have a cooking vertical called Skillet. Claire Lower is our food writer and she knows a thousand times more about food than I will ever know. And I can't, this is the type of writer that I love working with. I can barely pitch Claire ideas. Like anytime that I come up with a food idea that Claire is like, oh yeah, this is good. I never thought about this before. Like that's, that's a red letter day for me because I got to give an idea to someone who just knows so much more than me about their specific topic. 
and then mm. she can explore it and actually make something wonderful out of it. But I am not the authority there, and I'm not going to pretend to be the authority there. Same with tech, same with a lot of things. Like, the way that I like working with my team is just that, as a team, where I'm someone who can be curious and come up with ideas and to challenge people's thinking, but I don't have the answers. And that's something that I always, I, I always want to take my ego out of it, and I always want to replace that with curiosity. And so long as I am being you know, I, I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I just have to be one of the most curious to say, well, have we looked at it from this angle? Have we talked about it from mm -hmm. this angle before? People are commonly talking about this topic in this way. Well, is that the right way to look about, uh, look at that topic? Should we, should we encourage that mindset or that framework or should we push back against it and why? And that is mm -hmm. where I find my role to be important is to, ask those questions and help refine different topics and different angles so that those people who do have the foundational knowledge and do have that expertise, they can explore that stuff further. I think the, the thing that a lot of people in my position might get tripped up in is feeling the need to be smart. And I, I will always mm. undermine the idea of having to be the smart one or showing that you're smart mm. or needing to be, you know, the, the person who knows it all. I will tell my team all the time and every opportunity I can. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know the answers. If I, if I do have a perspective or an opinion or an experience, and I will gladly share it. But if I don't know, it is perfectly fine to say that you don't know, even as a leader. I think that's a, a great thing to do so that you can rely on those people who do know and let them feel brave and confident and develop their own voice and their own authority. And they're going to do a better job that way. They're going to explore those topics in a more thorough way. They're going to be more confident doing it. And they're going to be able to teach you something. Or in this case, using myself as the example, they teach me a ton. And I really enjoy doing that. And that makes the, the challenge of talking about a wide breadth of topics a whole lot easier. Just having a good mm -hmm. team around that is hopefully is, is just as curious or more curious than I am. Yeah. Oh, I love that. There's a lot of humility there. I mean, you, you have to be humble enough to, to embrace other people's ideas and let them lead when I would imagine in that role of leadership, um, there's a lot of potential insecurity and fear. Like mm -hmm. I have to yeah. be the smart one because so people are looking it. to me to be smart. Yeah. Let that go. Like I, I, oh man. I, yeah. I, I'm sure we've all seen that so much. We've all worked with people who, want or need to be the smartest person in the room yeah like take that burden off yourself it is it is liberating <laughs> embrace yes. being stupid on some things we're, we're not going to be the smartest person yeah. on something like if you don't know something about a particular yeah. topic or if you're completely ignorant to what's going on in a particular area that's okay we're all going to have our blind spots that curiosity is going to get you a whole lot further than you faking it mm. Mm. that's such a good word liberating taking the burden off of needing to be smart. And then the curiosity, I think there's so much to curiosity, which we'll talk about when we get to your book, because like you said, you, you, you nerd out over a lot of <laughs> things and I just love it because uh, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to the book in a second. But, um, uh, so you're in a, you're in a unique position compared to like, like say my students and that you have assets, you have a team and they can not only write about all these different topics, but let's say you were all still writing about one topic. Let's say life hacker was just productivity. You have a team of people to still pitch ideas and bounce things off each other. Speak to someone listening in who's doing it solo. And, and, and so I'm preaching to them. Content is everything. Content marketing. That's what's going to get your brand out there. And also it's going to refine what you believe in, what you teach. It allows you to test ideas. So just be a content machine. Um, you know, to write is to think and to teach is to learn and all these things. So they get that beat into their head by me every single week. But the challenge is, right, they've been blogging or doing a podcast or doing a YouTube channel for a year, two, three years, either running out of ideas mm -hmm. or losing perspective on who their audience is and, and how they can serve them well through content. So any suggestions, any ideas to help someone who's having to do it all by themselves be a prolific content creator like, like you have? Oh man, there's a lot there. So one of the things that you had mentioned when it comes to running out of ideas, it's spin those ideas as soon as they come. I know I fall into the pitfall sometimes as many writers do 
where you you have this this nugget of an idea and you want to save it until you can develop it into this perfect thing and you add pressure onto that topic to be you know that like this is going to be my manifesto on this topic spin the idea as soon as you can like that's like mm. get it out there i completely agree with what you mentioned about being a content machine uh, there is no better way of learning and being called out on your own sort of BS and I guess subsequently learning <laughs> because of it than by putting things out there into the public sphere, mm. like putting your ideas out there and sharing them with others. People will either agree or disagree and you can use those as learning opportunities. Of course, I mean, and this sort of is a, is a tangent or a side conversation if we're talking about what type of feedback to pay attention to and what you can just sort of filter out as unhelpful or trolling or whatever. But in general, the more that you're creating, the more that you're putting out there, you're writing your ideas and you're one improving because you're, you know, as you write things, you're going to continue to refine your voice and you're going to incrementally learn. And the other thing is people are going to respond to it and you're going to have a better understanding of how to connect with other people, how people respond to certain ways that you're writing or certain ways that you're communicating or certain information that you shared. And you're going to edit and change your writing and grow accordingly. One of the, one of my approaches to writing, probably, probably my biggest approach to writing and my biggest, if I had to just say a philosophy to anything that I am sharing in the, uh, you know, in, 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 my newsletter in the Atlantic or in my book or wherever else I'm writing is that I've learned what works for me is contextualizing an idea inside of a story, because that's just how the human brain works. In my opinion, is that we understand, and not just my opinion, I mean, science and studies, I've shown this for a while now, is that people will remember and relate and understand and connect with stories far more than information. If I were to give you a set of information about, you know, Ukraine and Russia, you can, you can, you can memorize some information, but you're going to have a completely different experience. You're going to have a completely different connection to a story or, or, or that information. If it's in the context of a story and if it's something that you can connect with and remember, like you're just going to remember it a lot better. If it's told in a narrative. That's just how yeah. our brains evolve. That's just how we understand things. So one of the things that I do whenever I'm writing is, is try to couch it in a narrative usually about myself or, or about someone that I know, because that's the thing that's going to create empathy in the reader and help them to put those facts or that information in context, in a context of why that information is relevant, why it matters. So that's, that's something that I figured out just by writing and figuring out what readers connect with and what they completely ignore. And you know, other writers might come up to, to the same point or they might find their own style or their own type of communication that's effective. And you don't learn that until you fumble through it over and over and over again. And the last thing I would say on the topic is, I think you started your question with this, the idea of writing to understand what you think. There is, in my opinion, no better way for me to get a grasp on my own opinion than to write it out, than to be able to explain it to someone else and, and to see if they can make sense of my thoughts. Like at first, first I have to make sense of my own thoughts by writing it out. And then yep. I can, it, whenever I write something, my first thought, I mean, just to be completely honest, even, even if it's something that, you know, down the line turned out to be very popular or people thought was amazing, Whenever that first draft is done, my question to myself is like, does this make any sense? Like, I, don't, I never can tell if, if it's yeah. something that like, if the themes that I thought existed are actually going to connect with a reader or shine through, or if I even like wrote it in English, I felt like that the whole time I was writing my book, I was like, mm. there are these stories, are these feelings, are these themes only do they only make sense in my own brain or do they make sense to someone else? And the first step is at least trying to make it make sense to my own brain and then and doing that by writing and then showing it to other people and having them respond to it and, and, and being brave enough to do that. I think 
the main thing that holds us back from doing that generally is just a fear of rejection and the fear of our ego being bruised because we think that the work that we produce reflects us as we are as people, who we are as a person, as opposed to the work itself. Mm. And I think being able mm. to divorce your work from who you are as a person and your self-worth is, is one way of alleviating that fear so that you can be that content producing machine. You can be someone who's writing a lot of things to, you know, to try to express ideas and not worrying, not taking it personally. If those ideas are embraced or rejected, you're just like, Oh, now I know more about this idea. And again, taking your, your ego out of it. Oh man, this, there's so much good there. There's like a masterclass in, in creating content. I love what you said there at the end though. It's, the one of the very first videos I put on this this YouTube channel when I shift pivoted into teaching business was um, your work is not your identity or why oh, you shouldn't yeah. get your identity from your yep. work. And it's maybe my least popular video because no one seems to care about the topic, but it's probably the most important video I've put out in. And I think that connects to your point about the fear. Everyone that I have interacted with that's new to content creation, it is scary to put yourself out there. It was scary for me 12 years ago when I got started. It's it's scary sometimes to this day on a certain topic that I know is either gonna people are gonna disagree with or poke holes in, but I also kind of am sick. I kind of love controversial polarizing content. Um, but to your point, I think I heard a couple of action steps there for people is you, you the forcing yourself to create the content to write out the idea or pitch you know out to yourself what the video is going to be about or the podcast episode that helps you clarify your thoughts just by writing it and but then i think your your very first point i think is really the key there is you cannot learn just by creating content in, an, in a silo or thinking about something on your own. You have to engage with real people and bounce it off real people to see what they think and not everyone's opinions are worth the same mm -hmm. but you learn a lot about, to your point, what people like that might surprise you that you think is like, we all think that what we're good at, what we do is, is not interesting or it's normative or it's just like, mm. eh, but it could be supernatural or super extraordinary to someone else. And we don't know that till we test it out. And we also can think really highly of an idea and it just falls flat and you just don't know until you put the content out there. So to your point, I think everyone listening that is trying to create content or is making content you know, embrace the fear, but try to separate who you are and what you do and then get, get, like you said, spin it out as quickly as possible so that you can get some engagement so you can have more clarity on where to go with your content or who you are, or what you even believe yeah. in or stand for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you don't have to pigeonhole yourself either. I mean, you can have some content that you're trying to, you know, relay a very serious, important idea, you know, and, and you can also have content that you create. I mean, depending on what type of content creator you are, it's, do things for fun. Like don't, like, yeah. I think the sooner as a content creator, the sooner that you can detach your personal identity from your work, then you'll have a lot more freedom to have fun and to put your serious ideas out there to try to convey what it is that you think or feel about something. But then you're also using it as a learning opportunity when someone, you know, fact checks you and you're wrong about something like, okay, you might be wrong about something and then you can learn from that. Yeah. Like we're all going to be wrong. Yeah. I, I am sure I've published something that has been factually incorrect at some point. Like it probably happened whether I'm aware of it or not. And I would want to know that because I would want yeah. hopefully my work and me creating that work to be based on wanting to have good, accurate work out there as opposed to me being yeah. right about it. I, I, I want, I think everyone would be benefited by caring about the truth more than being right. And you know, Oof, once, yeah. <laughs> like, if, if that's the foundation of, you know, your, your communication and your stories and what it is that you're creating, then you'll, you'll want people to fact check you if you're, if you yes. happen to be wrong, you're going to want, cause that's, yeah, that's your opportunity to learn. Oh, so good. Yeah. I, it, it is that tension between as a content creator being selfish, creating content that you do enjoy and that's for you, but really creating content to serve other people, mm -hmm. to serve the audience that you're called to serve, whether it's in your business or writing for another publication or con contributing like, and that is attention. But I think that's the fun of it is it's not all one or the other. And you can get tripped up if you're just completely selfish and it's all that matters is that I'm right or that I'm writing for myself, which maybe that's fine. That's more for a private mm -hmm. thing, but you won't get far if it's not serving people. But at the same time, I fall into the other trap, which is 
just give people like what they're looking for, be didactic. I'll, I won't share it to your point about stories. It's taken me years to, as an educator and a content creator, involve more storytelling in my content because it's not natural for me. And I am a personality that wants to just get to the yeah. point. So I usually mm -hmm. am like, Oh, it's a story. Here we go. But that's, I'm realizing I'm a minority. I think most people I interact with, they love story yeah. and I love story. I mean, I love movies, but I, I haven't connected the two. And you know, Donald Miller building a story brand is a fascinating take on that as a marketing tool. And everyone I, I talk to says something similar, but it's something I'm having to work on. But at the same time, I know, it does maybe not every piece has to be a story for me, but at, those are the chops I'm trying to, yeah. the reps I'm trying to get in and, and improve upon. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah. Dude, let's talk about stories. Let's talk about your book. Sure. So the book is, it's Piccolo, Piccolo's Black. Uh, <laughs> I, I love it. Like when I, when I first saw the title, I was like, wait, is this like, is this Dragon Ball Z? Because I'm not, I, Dragon Ball Z was the one show I didn't really follow, like uh -huh. but I had a buddy growing up with that I played in a band with, and he was obsessed with Dragon Ball Z. So I was like, what a <laughs> book title. So first of all, kudos to you. Uh, subtitle, A Memoir of Race, Religion, and Pop Culture. So uh, a couple things here. One, this book is full of stories about your life, but what's insane about it, and you kind of talk about this in the intro, that you weren't really setting out to write a memoir. It was really more of, more of you wanted to say some important things about race, religion, humanity, through pop culture. Mm -hmm. uh, we're similar age. I might be a couple years older than you. I was born in 83. I'm thinking you're born 85. That is exactly right. right. Okay. So we, we grew up basically in the same era. Um, but what's interesting is that, yeah, you're talking about your life from cover, you know, start to finish. But anyone that grew up in, in the 80s and 90s, feels like all of a sudden Jordan disappears and I'm like, this is, this is my life, bro. So although you and I come from very different backgrounds, also we come from very similar backgrounds, which was very fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up with a Christian background. You talk a lot throughout the book about your seventh day Adventist background and faith. And then we just liked a lot of the same things, but I, I want to get into some of those in a minute. I mean, it just, for me, it was a trip down memory lane. And, so awesome. and it reminded me that I've like, I've grown up too fast at this point. Cause I had to get, I had a really sad experience when I, I lost two jobs in one year during the global recession mm -hmm. and was on food stamps and had a baby. And I was like, I've got to find a way to make mm -hmm. a living. And the beauty of that season of my life was that I became a business owner. I didn't know that I was going to be a business owner. It changed my life, my career and all that stuff. The sad thing is I, I grew up real uh -huh. fast in my mid twenties and I put away childish oh, yeah. things as apostle yep. Paul would yep. say. And I, I'm, I'm like trying to bring them back. I was playing some Nintendo Switch with my kids this weekend. But okay, so on a page that's right next to a page about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, you, you, you talked about. So you talked about a couple things. You, you talked about the freaking Transformer movie. Oh, that's my shit. Yeah. Of the animated movie. And bro, it had been so many years since I saw the movie. That movie is phenomenal, <laughs> by the way. Like way too serious that's the first death, for a kid's the movie. The first death I remember in animation was in that movie. You talked yeah, about that. Yeah. So that, that's what I wanted you to talk about. You're talking about early on in the book about this and you, you're talking about Optimus Prime versus Megatron. And that I was all of a sudden remembering all the scenes like, oh my gosh, it was so good, man. I'm gonna have to go get it. But you said something fascinating because, and it really resonated with me. So this is where I'm being selfish because I felt like you were speaking to me about me. You're talking about characters in the movie that were throwaway characters. Mm -hmm. And you you say something that just was palpable in one line. I I didn't want to be minor. You're talking about these minor mm -hmm. characters. I wanted to matter. Mm -hmm. And bro, like that might be a simple line for some people, but for me that was like, "Oh man, he's reading my mail." <laughs> um and it and it and it came from a Transformer movie. So just Maybe talk a little bit about what you mean by that statement and how has that shaped your journey? Like of realizing, gosh, either I don't know if it's life is short or some characters are the primary characters in a story and story is life and life is story. And I want to be a character that matters. I feel like that's a very natural thing. Personally, I feel like that God like put in us like that, that we want to have value and worth. But tell me, like, I'm just putting my words into it. What what do you mean by that statement and how has that shaped Man. who you are? Well, so I'll start by saying one of the things that I find most exciting right now in this moment is that this is an example of the power of story, right? Like you and I all of a sudden felt like we had this mirror 
experience in life because we both relate to these stories that we consumed. And this is now a language that we can communicate. Like we can talk about an idea or a feeling or a concept in the context of Optimus Prime. Like it's, it, it seems so ridiculous, right. but it's so normal at the same time. Like if two people watch the same movie or the same, read the same book or watch the same TV show, they're able to talk about really important things that come from a narrative. And it's so important to be able to speak that cultural language to understand other people and to feel empathy. So I, I absolutely love that. And what I was thinking about when I was writing, you know, not wanting to be minor and wanting to be important. And so on the surface level, there's characters in every, you know, every cartoon or TV show, especially if it's like action where people die, you know, there's, there's the extras. They're the people that do yeah. not matter and they get killed and by design, you don't think about like, oh, that person had hopes and dreams. Like that person, had, like, <laughs> like no, goon number two dies. Like you don't think, okay, yeah, they're gone. You don't think about the fact that someone, you know, that that person mattered. They're an extra. They they yep. don't really matter. And the people, the characters that do matter, are the ones that do have some larger purpose. They have aspirations, they have hopes, they have dreams, they have people who care about them. And on a deeper level, what I'm talking about at that stage of the book is is self-worth. And that's what I was looking for really early on. Um, and you know, that we're all <laughs> looking for sort of probably on an ongoing basis. But as a kid, a lot of a lot of kids, and this was not the case for me, but a lot of kids uh, have the very fortunate scenario of being instilled with a sense of self-worth very early on just by their parents loving them and showing them attention and, and getting a certain amount of fulfillment from those people around them. I, yeah. My self-worth growing up in a very pious religious home, my self-worth was based on God. It was God loves me, Jesus died for me, therefore I have a purpose. I have a reason to be on earth. And when that starts to be challenged or goes away, or you're not feeling like you are on pace to go to heaven, if you're not feeling particularly righteous, if you're if you're a kid who's gonna be, you know, fled with guilt because you, you know, did something wrong or whatever the case is then your self-worth is in question and then you start to feel like you don't matter. Your self-worth can take a mm. hit. So a lot of what I'm talking about early on in the book when I'm, you know, as a really young kid is my sense of self-worth and finding it, trying to find it and the fear that you don't matter and the extreme desperate hope that you do. And the feeling of sort of insecurity and unknowing of your place in that. Like, are, are you an extra or are you a main character? You, you, you don't really know. Like, no one knows. Yep. <laughs> and, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's what I was thinking about when, when I wrote that. Like, yeah. That's deep, man. It's deep for a kid. I appreciate you sharing that. I, I think the, the, you know, the longer I live, the more people I come across, right? This is all right. A huge theme in your book is race. Is your like we are all shaped by our upbringing, mm -hmm. right? And like, and we have no control over our yeah. upbringing, right? <laughs> to your point about our, who our parents mm -hmm. are, what race or not, or where we grew up, what country. Like, I wasn't born in Ukraine. Right. It would be a really rough season if I were raised and live in Ukraine mm -hmm. right now. But like, so you t we're we're all shaped by our our childhood and our view of the world, which is always a narrow view. And that some parents maybe do a better job of trying to expose their kids to more views early mm -hmm. on and some, some don't or whatever the case may be. But like you're talking about these themes of like, man, finding your place as a black kid and a black man in, in you've been in like black schools, white mm -hmm. schools. You've, you, you have an interesting perspective. We have to see both. And what's cool about the book and everybody should read it. It, it really flies through. I was flying through the book. Um, you you continue to weave in these stories of pop culture movies yeah. and and music and video games. I mean everything that like I feel like and you 
it, what's so cool is that it was nerdy back mm-hmm. then, but I don't think it's nerdy anymore. I think it's actually <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. All this stuff is co- somehow uh-huh, cool now. Uh-huh. Uh, like I took my kids to Galaxy's Edge, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge this weekend for my 10-year-old's 10th birthday, and, and I was like, Barry, like this, I was not cool liking right, Star Wars as right. a kid, but like now it's it's okay to like Star Wars, so I'm very happy. But you 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 mixed it all together in a beautiful way. Um, that for me, one thing I just wanted to say I appreciate is, and this is kind of getting back to my point of like I have my perspective growing up, and then everyone I come across as I get older, as I have more conversations, I just continue to learn. And I get a, a bigger, wider picture of the human experience, whether it's time in Nicaragua with like the most poor of poor people that I've ever spent time with to people in the south of France who just they chill way the heck out and they don't dr- drive as hard as we do in the States to different parts of this country and different people's experience. But you you have communicated a lot to me about your experience in a way that other people haven't because you did it through something we share equally. Mm-hmm. It's so um, uniting. When you're talking about Pokemon or you're talking about Power Rangers or you're talking about uh, you know, Backstreet Boys versus NSYNC, <laughs> like we all, like it, it levels the playing field and it reminds us, bro, we're human. And then from that place, I was able to better enter into your experience. So I just want to say thank you for thank that. You. It was really refreshing. Thank um, you. And you just... You did a really you did it pretty masterfully. I don't I don't know if you know how how powerful that that book I, is the I way mean, you presented it. I I just wanted to be honest when I was writing it, man. There's there's so much in the book that is. Uh, I mean, there's a ton of the book that's embarrassing about me. Like you've read it, so you you know more than most people since it's. I know. Yet. There's yeah. a ton in the book that's completely vulnerable and completely embarrassing, and I want that to be out there to one take again take the ego out of it to be able to connect more effectively with other people because we all i am convinced feel the same way about a lot of these you know a lot of these human experiences so helping myself and others feel less alone is the reason that i write that's my why like that's that's what motivates me as a writer and uh (sighs) the other thing in in writing the book Oh, I just had this fleeting thought, and it lost me. It'll come back. Um, oh, what was this thought that I just had? It's all good, bro. We can edit it. Yeah, yeah, comes. it'll it'll come back to me. So there was writing the book to connect with people. I was talking about my why, and oh, this is what it was. I also always want to rally against the idea and this is something that i try to sort of write about a lot in the atlantic is is getting rid of the idea of lowbrow art like getting rid of Mm. this dichotomy between you know meaningful quote unquote like important art that is you know expensive and accessible is basically what a lot of it is versus you know uh, more populist accessible you know lowbrow with air quotes again like television and cartoons and things that people generally consider either unimportant or childish. And that Mm. is something that grates me to no end because uh, as you're alluding to in the book and, and, and something that I hope that I was able to land effectively is that these childish stories, these unimportant sort of throwaway stories are in nothing but important. Like these are very, important things to people who are able to connect with them and to a large number of people. I think we have this, this idea that the most, and it's sort of an under the surface idea, but that if something is very, you know, accessible and populous, then it's, you know, it's lowbrow and it's not as important and it's not mm-hmm. as, is, is, you know, it's, it's not as meaningful. It's not art the same way as something mm-hmm. that is going to be really niche and really inaccessible. And, yeah, cartoons and comic books and all those things that we used to consider lowbrow, or maybe a lot of people still consider lowbrow or unimportant or whatever. Those are those are great mediums. Those are effective mediums for yeah. teaching empathy just as much as, as anything else. And the benefit that they have in their accessibility is that we can all talk about them because we all have we all have yeah. access to it. We all have the same level of exposure to it. 
And that's something that I wanted to get across in this book as well, that a lot of these things, you know, are, are, again, we grew up in the same generation. So it, you know, it wasn't foreign for us as a kid to probably hear that the TV was the idiot box and, you know, watching TV would make yep. you stupid or whatever like that. And like, yeah, I, I grew up on a ton of TV. <laughs> you could probably yeah. tell from the book, like I watched a ton of, of TV and yes, with most things you're going to want to do it in moderation. But those stories weren't all dumb. Those stories, a lot of them had more meaning no. than what uh, than what we might have attributed to them. And I hope in reading the book, yeah. people can see examples of how something as you know silly as Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, can have an impact on a young kid's life. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a beautiful perspective, and I think it's so true. And I think anyone who grew up in our generation or around it maybe hasn't articulated it, but would all feel like, yeah, that's that stuff is real. It's not childish or cheesy. Like that's how I learned yeah. like a lot of yeah. different things about life, about emotions, about human yeah. interaction. You know, even though we know it's a fictional right. story, like those were what we cut our teeth yeah. on versus maybe a lot of literature that uh, fifty years ago people would right. read in a library. Yeah. So, for people that aren't familiar, like Piccolo, yeah, and this this debate, and I was I was in a bunch of like subreddits about um, because again, I I didn't follow the show enough to know, and then as a, as a white kid, I wouldn't have had this yeah, conversation with yeah. other white kids because I didn't know this. Although, what's interesting is my buddy who uh, who loved Dragon Ball Z was an Indian kid, and uh, and so I would get an interesting perspective about life in general from him. But so why why the title Piccolo's Black? I know we don't have a ton, a ton of time, but like this is a theme throughout yeah. about black representation in this media and how it shifted and how it still maybe wasn't enough. But I'm curious because that was a, it's a very bold title when you understand what it's all about. So maybe just explain it to the Absolutely. listeners. Absolutely, I'm so proud of this title. Like, the way that I feel about the book is like if the whole if if you know 255 pages of the book were absolute trash, I I at least know 100 percent sure in my heart. Like I I would you know, die by this title. It is, it's, I, I absolutely <laughs> love it because it, it sort of plays as a, if you know, you know, type of thing. And for people who yes. know, so for any black kid or for any black nerd who was growing up watching Dragon Ball Z, the idea that Piccolo is black was a given. Like most black kids saw that and they're like, oh, that's the black character. Because we were all really good at identifying the black character. Because when we grew up with such uh, such sparse representation in childhood media, we all sort of learn this implicit skill of assigning race, coding race on characters to which race wasn't assigned. So we would see a character like Piccolo or Martian Manhunter or the Gargoyles or Doug's best friend Skeeter, who's a blue character. And we would look at them and go, oh, they're the black character. Like, that's the black best friend. We know this archetype. We recognize yeah. it. And we would be able to assign race to those characters so that we can see ourselves in media because we really didn't see ourselves that much otherwise. And the book title, Piccolo is Black, is one where for black nerds, they're like, oh, yes, this is giving a name to something, giving credibility to something that we all sort of knew but isn't a wide sort of accepted idea outside of our community. And then for people like you who didn't think about it before and weren't aware of it, it's like, oh, like once you get it once someone explains it in sort of a pretty straightforward way you're like oh i like it's, it's sort of a click moment where you're like oh i i get it they like a, a marginalized group didn't have representation so they were able to learn this skill set that white people generally weren't being taught like you didn't i imagine yeah. you growing up weren't thinking about like let me find the white characters you were just flooded with white characters so you didn't really have to think twice exactly about it. But if you weren't flooded exactly. with characters that represented your race or your religion or, you know, your, your ability or whatever, then you search for those people to, to mirror you. And, and that's yeah. the importance of the title to me is that it's a nod to an experience that a lot of people in, in my bubble would absolutely be happy to see validated like that idea being validated. Mm. And for people who aren't in that bubble, it's a learning experience to say, oh, this was 
And it's not even a challenging learning experience. It's one that, like, once you got it, you got it. And then you were able to connect with, you know, the people in that bubble who, who made that mental adaptation. And it would hopefully give you or people like you a, a, a better understanding and a degree of empathy for people who have to do that. And maybe think about the times that you had to do that yourself, that you did that yourself. It's, it's man, it's special to me. I, I absolutely love the title and I'm glad that I was able to hopefully, you know, thread examples of that throughout the book in a way that solicits empathy from the reader and is relatable to the reader and is also sort of educational. I think there's, especially early on, the first part of the book, there's a lot of explanations of, you know, the history of animation and how, you know, yeah. how representation was terrible and then less terrible in the state of where it is now. And uh, that stuff is all really important foundational context when we're talking about the importance of stories and how stories are told. Yeah, man. Well, I, I'm just grateful for it. I think you did achieve your goal. I think it was done in a way that was relatable and tasteful and educational and all those things. So I, I learned a lot from that. Um, one other quick theme I just wanted to touch on that I just was threaded throughout the book. It seemed like as you were going through your your life story and then these different seasons, these different interactions with family members and friends and, and school was this uh, desire for and this search for what you would maybe describe as true family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you, you're you're looking for family. Um, it was a very honest, like you know, you describe what your family was or what you describe as family during seasons and what was lacking and what you were hoping for. And in a lot of ways, it was very relatable. I think because all of us want to be in a community. I think that's why, unfortunately, this is a side tangent, but I kind of, I think that's one reason why you see so much group think like what group mm -hmm, do I belong mm -hmm. to? Um, and that's all, in a lot of ways can be divisive because we're just like thinking about the group, but it's because underneath that we want to belong right. to something, but, but you know, without, we don't have time to go into it. This is a really deep question, but it was, it was just such a, it was such a palpable uh, thread throughout the entire book that I had to ask you about it. Like, how would you personally describe true family? And in you, from your perspective, given what you're looking for, what you value, what, what is family to you? Today, what's family to me? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, man, that is a deep, tough one. I feel... Whew, I feel very fortunate as an adult where I am in life that I have a lot of close friends who are as close as family who care about me as a person and who give me a lot of the unconditional love and support that I was looking for as a kid. And those are people who I would consider, you know, my, my circle, my, my family. Um, but I'm, I don't know if, if, man, I wish I had a clearer answer. I might have to write about this to, to figure it out. I wish I had a clearer answer for what is it about them that makes them my family? Like, is it, it it's, it's, I mean, just thinking out loud right now, it's not that we all have the same, you know, political views or we all, you know, like all the same things or anything like that. There's something else there that I don't know if I can put my finger on right now, but I will say one thing that I do know that they all have in common is that, I feel that they truly love and value and support me. And I think that goes a lot. It, it, it sort of, it, it seems like sort of Mr. Rogers asked when he, <laughs> when he would, you know, be meeting with kids and say, I just, I just love you just for you. And no matter what it is yeah. that you do, you know, like you're great as you are. Uh, that sort of whole cheesy thing, I think, is absolutely cheesy, but probably holds true in some way, at least in my personal experience, that those people who I'm down with are people who I feel I would support them through a ton of things, and they would do the same for me. And those are the people who I think, uh, yeah, you, you feel like you're you're in it together with. And, yeah, I'm... 
I'm grateful to find it. And once I come up with a better answer, I'll probably write it down. <laughs> oh, no, it was uh, it's deep. I put you on the spot. It's a good answer. And I think what I, I hear in that and I would champion is someone who loves you as the person, not you as the performance, like what you yeah, can do. Yeah, not what you can do. Oh, God. That is, there's been a lot of therapy conversations about that. I think, <laughs> I think a lot of uh, growing up and, and, and maybe even to this day, I'm sure I struggle it to, uh, struggle with it to some degree is that my self-worth after I had, you know, left my faith and all that stuff, a lot of my self-worth was based in what it was that I could accomplish, what I could do for other people. Yeah. I mean, that's the only way that you end up with, I triple majored in undergrad and then I got a master's degree and I end up doing a lot yeah. of ridiculous things just to show that I am worth something by nature of what it is that I can accomplish. And mm being able to shed that to some degree or have people care about me without even needing to know those things or caring about those things at all and caring about me as a person. Uh, I think that's, 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 that's really important and powerful. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Hey, Jordan, this has been incredible. Um, the book is Piccolo is Black, everyone. Pick it up. The book drops April 26th. You can pre-order it now. Um, and subscribe to the Atlantic newsletter that Jordan writes. His column is phenomenal. And check out all this stuff there. And, of course, Lifehacker as well. We'll link to all of those um, on the show notes page if you're listening to the podcast or below if you're watching on YouTube. Anywhere else people can find you, interact with you, Jordan, and Easiest to way. celebrate you and the book and all Easiest you're Easiest way to find everything is probably on Twitter. I mean, my Instagram and Twitter are the same handle at Jordan M as in Michael at Jordan M Calhoun. And you can find me on Twitter there. Everything else will be linked from Twitter. Amazing. Perfect. Jordan, thank you for the conversation. Thanks for your honesty and thanks for creating an incredible book that was yeah, so helpful for me and it took me down the trip on memory lane. It was really, really a <laughs> wild so ride. Awesome here. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jordan. Be sure to pick up his new book, Piccolo is Black. It's a fun trip through memory lane if you were living in the 80s and 90s for sure. Uh, it's going to be linked below in the description on YouTube. Otherwise, you can look it up wherever books are sold if you're listening to the audio podcast of this show. If you need any help kickstarting your online business journey, you know where to go. It is my online income jumpstart. It's a 30-day guide to get you from zero to making your first few hundred dollars online in the next 30 days. It's a free PDF, four-week step-by-step checklist. Check it out for free at grahamcochran.com slash jumpstart. Have an amazing day. We'll see you in another episode real soon.